I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, searching for kinship in the cosmos with Jamie Green and her new book, The Possibility of Life. Jamie Green is a science writer, essayist and series editor of the Best American Science and Nature Writing. She received her MFA in Creative Nonfiction from Columbia University and her writing has appeared in Slate, Popular Science, The New York Times Book Review, Catapult, Astrobytes and elsewhere. And today we're going to be talking about Jamie's book, The Possibility of Life, Searching for Kinship in the Cosmos. Jamie, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me, first of all, then, I guess, what was the inspiration for this book? That is such a hard question to answer because it goes so far back into my childhood that it's things I can't even remember. You know, it's, I guess it starts, you know, when I'm seven years old or so, and my dad puts on Star Trek The Next Generation for the first time. Like, in terms of how I became a person that wanted to write this book, it was my whole life. I grew up loving science, loving science fiction especially loving astronomy. But it really started the idea that I would actually write a book about this as opposed to just be someone who loved going to the planetarium. When I was in graduate school about 10 or 11 years ago, I was studying creative nonfiction. And all of the nonfiction students, we had a required class that was a research seminar where we would, you know, spend the semester learning research techniques and writing something based on our research, sort of to pull the memoir writers out of always writing about their own lives, which was never really my speed anyway. And we had to pick a topic to research. And so I wanted to write about the Voyager Golden Record, which is this sort of message in a bottle, actual record made out of gold, like it sounds, that was stuck to the Voyager probes when they were launched in 1977, with the idea that if anyone ever found these, it would be a message from Earth. And it's, you know, this tremendously romantic idea. The content of the record was devised by Carl Sagan, you know, so I had known about it and loved it. I was like, that's what I want to write about. And my professor said, go bigger, write about aliens. And I was like, well, that's a lot bigger, but okay. And that was when I started writing about it. And I had the idea that this would be a a book I would love to write. And so I would do the thing that a lot of writers do where I would go to the bookstore and visit the shelf where my future book that I was dreaming about might live. But there were already several books about this on the shelf. 
And they were written by scientists. They were written by astronomers, people with PhDs who were doing this research that they were writing about. And I just didn't see how I, you know, an essayist would have anything to compete with there. So I put it aside for a few years. But then a friend was, she was commissioning essay series, and she asked if I had an idea for an essay series about culture. And I said, well, what about aliens through a cultural lens? And for some reason, she said yes. <laughs> and um, it was when I was writing the second or third one of those, which was about depictions of aliens in sci-fi, putting that in conversation with what scientists had to say about how we imagine aliens that I just found I could keep going. I just wanted to keep writing and writing. The essay was way longer than it was supposed to be, and I just didn't feel like I was finished. And that's when I realized that this could be my way into this conversation, and this could be what I really brought to this, you know, to the shelf in the bookstore, because I was coming at it from the outside. I'm not a practitioner in the field. I don't have a PhD or anything, but I could write about the science, which I love, and also write about what it means to us and how we make meaning of that science and looking at it as an imaginative project rather than just, you know, a, a project seeking answers. And from there, it just sort of, all of a sudden it made sense to me. And I knew that this was how I could write about this thing that I had loved for my entire life. All the way through the book, though, you use it, <clears throat> as, you, as you just mentioned, like examples from popular culture and literature to look at, you know, ideas around life, around aliens. Thinking right back, obviously now in the present day, we know, obviously we, we can never know everything, but we know quite a lot about our own place in the universe and other planets, and we're starting to discover other planets. But, you know, back in the day, from, you know, Copernicus to Darwin and even into the 20th century, as we were making more and more discoveries, how does the, you talk about this early on in the book, how the representation of aliens and other planets changes in popular culture, depending on, you know, what new discovery is made, if you see what I mean? Yeah, I mean, the, the first big change was that Copernicus and Galileo made it possible to imagine life on other worlds, because before them, and especially before Galileo's discoveries of with, you know, new advances in telescopes, he was able to look at the planets, which before that, you know, with the naked eye, a planet looks like a star. And we can tell it's not a star because it doesn't twinkle and it doesn't move with the stars. It moves separately. You know, they were called wandering stars. But it wasn't until Galileo that he looked and saw that these were spheres. That, you know, he looked at Venus and saw that it had phases like the moon. And that revealed that the planets were worlds, and that made them places that it was possible to imagine other life. And at first, it was, you know, imagined without abandon and with practically no separation from science. One of the early sort of, you could call it sci-fi texts that I write about is this, you know, wild imagining of a man who has a dream and learns about what the people are like on the moon. It was written by Johannes Kepler, who's one of the most important astronomers of his time. He's the one who discovered that the orbits of the planets are ellipses, not circles. Like he made an innovation that even Copernicus couldn't make. So that line was non-existent. It wasn't separated, you know, the fiction writers from the scientists. And it really seems to me like, you know, that book was clearly fiction. It was, it was framed differently from Kepler's scientific work. 
but it was all part of the same project of trying to understand and make sense of these new discoveries and figure out how to, like the new discoveries sort of shatter your worldview. And then to put the pieces back together, you imagine the possible implications and possible meanings of this new worldview. And at first, the, the extrapolation was, okay, if the planets are worlds just like our world, then they're made of the same things that our world is made of. And that includes, you know, earth, air, water, but that also included the vital force of life. Because at that time, it was the, the idea of spontaneous generation was dominant. That, you know, yes, people give birth to other people, but sometimes life was thought to just arise. If you left meat out, maggots arose. If you left hay out, mice arose. You know, that was, we thought that, that there was this inherent life force. And so then we thought that that would be on other planets and that life on other planets would be similar to life on Earth. It might be bigger. It might, you know, have different culture, but it was, they were, you know, thinking of other men. It was not as wildly different. Then... Another thing that really unlocked other possibilities was Darwin and the idea of evolution. This changed the idea of, you know, it, it added a new framework to how we were imagining life on other worlds, because then if life evolves, then you get this idea of progression. And at the same time, there was the idea at the time that planets had an evolutionary trajectory as well. And at that point, they thought that planets farther out from the sun formed first. So then Mars would have had more time to evolve than Earth. And that's where you get this trope of these superior conquering Martians that we see in War of the Worlds and other work from sort of the around the turn of the 20th century. And from Darwin, we also can extrapolate the idea of what if the intelligent species on a planet didn't evolve from apes into us? What if it was a different animal, a different kind of animal that evolved into intelligence and dominance. So that's where you get bug people and lizard people and these sort of other versions. They're all taking scientific theories and scientific worldviews and sort of stretching them and taking them a little farther and seeing where they lead if you continue extrapolating. We'll take a step back and just look at a what seems on the surface to be um, a quite simple question, but it's, it, it turns out to be extremely complicated. Um, that being, how are we defining life here? Oh, um, yeah. As an aside, one of the um, one of the great pleasures of reading this book was coming across people that I've interviewed myself over the years, and um, one of those is Sarah Imari Walker, who yes. um, you talked to about uh, biomarkers. Um, what's that idea? Yeah, Sarah is is one of my favorite researchers who I talked to in this book because she changed how I see a lot of things. So. On the question of, you know, how we define life, this is a project that has challenged scientists and philosophers for centuries. And it, it became important again in like the 70s and 80s when we started sending landers to Mars and thinking about how we might find life on other worlds within the solar system. And in order to know what you're looking for, you have to know what you're looking for. And at some point in the 70s, Carl Sagan wrote this really fantastic essay for the Encyclopedia Britannica where he runs through all the different ways that people were proposing to define life at the time. And he shows that all of those definitions have flaws. So let's say you have a metabolic definition of life, which is, you know, life is a, 
self-sustaining system that consumes energy to, you know, keep living, consumes fuel to sustain itself. Well, a fire fits that definition. Or if you use reproduction and growth, then, well, a mule can't reproduce or a, um, a dormant seed isn't growing, but we know that they're alive. And there was no definition he could find in the current conversations that included everything you wanted to include and excluded everything that you wanted to exclude. And one reason I've encountered for that problem is that there are scientists and philosophers of science, and Sarah is one of those scientists, who argue that the quest to define life is fundamentally flawed. And the reason for that is that we use definitions to explain human concepts. You know, one example that comes up from a philosopher of science named Carol Cleland, she always uses the example of a bachelor. Bachelor is a human-made conceptual term, and you define it, and it can be hard to define because you say, okay, a bachelor is an unmarried male, human, you know? Well, okay, is a five-year-old boy a bachelor? Not really. So how do you, you know, you keep refining and you keep refining. But life isn't, we hope, a human concept. It's not a linguistic term. We're not looking for the meaning of life as a word. We don't care what the word means. We're looking for the fundamental thing that it is because it is a, a feature of the universe. And for those sorts of things, we don't need definitions. What we need are theories. Like in order to understand gravity, we didn't need to define it. Say gravity is the thing that makes me stick on the earth. We needed a theory of gravity, which we got from Newton and then refined with Einstein, you know? So like, we don't define gravity. We, we have a conceptual theoretical understanding of it that it is, you know, the curvature of space-time. And so a really interesting thread of Sarah's work, and Sarah is a trained physicist, and she works in um, sort of at the intersection of the study of the origin of life and astrobiology, at where those two fields intersect, which is at our understanding of what life is. And Sarah says that we are fundamentally lacking a theory of life or a physics of life, an understanding of what life is, of what happens to physics when matter crosses that threshold into biology, what explains what's going on and what are the fundamental concepts. And she looks at that as a matter of complexity, a matter of information, and a matter of memory, that what differentiates life is that it is things that are so complex that they required a memory to come into existence and to sustain. And for us, you know, that memory's in our DNA. She would also say that a cell phone is proof of life. It's not alive, obviously, but it could only exist thanks to life because it's so complex that it requires a memory in your head or in the instructions at the factory to be created. And so that's a different way of thinking about life. And it's especially one that isn't limited by the particulars of life on Earth. It's not about carbon. It's not about water. It's about, she hopes, about physics and about the fundamental nature of the universe. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Jamie Green, and we're talking about her book, The Possibility of Life, Searching for Kinship in the Cosmos. And Jamie, another thing that an idea that has sort of thrown the cat among the pigeons, as it were, in terms of how we think about the formation of galaxies or the formation of solar systems. So, you know, we look at our own solar system and, you know, once upon a time, we think there was like a big accretion disk and then, you know, little rocky planets form near the sun and one of them's too hot and then you know there's the earth in the goldilocks zone and then the next one out is a little bit too cold and then you've got gas giants and then you've got frozen planets and that seems like that's probably a good sort of law of planetary formation and then we discover exoplanets how does that (laughs) then complicate that idea yeah they turned out to be a lot weirder than we expected one exoplanet scientist I talked to said the more we learn about exoplanets, the less we know about them. And I I just thought that was fantastic because it's really true. With our solar system, it fits so nicely into that model of planet formation that you so beautifully just described. But then some of the first planets found around other stars were what are called hot Jupiters, which are Jupiter-sized planets closer to their stars than Mercury is, which We know that there would not be enough material to form a Jupiter-sized planet that close to the star because it's so hot. So a lot of the um, things that where Jupiter formed would have been ice and so solid and so can accrete into a planet. They're all gaseous that close to the, the star. They all evaporate. So that introduced the idea of that planets must migrate during planet formation. They may move in towards their star 
some planets may be kicked out of the solar system by this sort of turbulent formation. And that was a real challenge to the idea of the Copernican principle, which is one of the fundamental things that we learned from Copernicus is not just that the Earth isn't the center of the solar system, but that we should never expect to be special, that we should assume that, you know, Earth is just another planet, the sun is just another star, it's pretty average. But then it turned out that our solar system maybe isn't so average, that maybe we have a lot more planets than you would expect. Or have we only scratched the surface of exoplanet discoveries and, you know, hot Jupiters were the ones that were found first because they're easy to find, because they're so big and they're so close to their stars. They just, because of how planet discoveries work, they were easier to see. It's really hard to find Earth-like planets at Earth-like distances from sun-like stars. It takes a lot of time and they're not very massive. So the effects that you're looking for are very subtle. So I don't know. There's a lot of extrapolation and inference from the planets that we've specifically identified and confirmed to assumptions about the overall populations. And I mentioned there the idea of the Goldilocks zone, which is where Earth sits in our solar system, which suggests that if we were looking for another planet suitable for life somewhere else, we would, of course, be thinking about somewhere that's habitable for humans to live on, one that has a breathable atmosphere and, you know, plants and water. But of course, that is not the same for another form of life that we could possibly imagine out there. So let's talk about some other ways in which we could imagine life forming on a planet that wasn't what we would think of as a habitable planet. One of the things about a lot of what you described about what makes Earth habitable is things that life has done to Earth. Like Earth has oxygen because bacteria started pumping out oxygen into the atmosphere as a byproduct of their metabolisms. And plants make the planet habitable for us, but plants are also part of the life that is living here. So when scientists talk about the Goldilocks zone, they're really trying to strip away as much as possible and get to the basics, which is the requirement for liquid water on the surface of the planet. And so that means that the planet has to be the right distance from the star so that, you know, not too hot, not too cold, Goldilocks. But all of the other factors that make Earth a nice place to live, whether it's plants and oxygen, or whether it's the moon, which helps stabilize a lot about Earth's seasons and atmosphere and um, an orbit and all of that, that's where we really don't know. If we're just seeing what works for us and what seems important on Earth, you know, Maybe other life figured it out in other ways. But it does seem like water may be fundamental. It's just such a special molecule, such a special substance. It's a fantastic solvent. The fact that ice floats, that the solid form is less dense than the liquid seems really important because it means that fish can survive the winter. You know, that seems fundamental. But also, even if it's not, we have to start the search somewhere. And life may be far more imaginative and far more clever than humanity is in thinking about where could life exist. But there are so many planets and we just, we have to start somewhere. So we may as well start with what we know worked for the one example that we know of. Let's spend the the rest of the interview there looking at some examples from popular culture 
to answer some of these questions. So one of the things that I wasn't, until reading this book, hadn't really considered, obviously I know about tides and stuff, but I hadn't really considered the importance of the moon to the existence of life on Earth. And and to look at that idea, you mention a book by um, the science fiction writer N.K. Jemison called The Broken Earth Trilogy, which takes place on a planet that used to have a moon. Yeah, this was one case where I, I read that book, you know, I wasn't sure that it was research for my book as I was reading it. And then when I got to this moment about the moon, I was so excited because I said, ah, I can write about this in my book. So that series is set on a world that has incredibly tumultuous geology, you know, earthquakes, volcanoes, to the point that society is built around being able to survive what they call these fifth seasons, where some cataclysmic earthquake or eruption or something happens that makes the planet almost uninhabitable for decades or centuries. And through the lore of the culture, people are able to hunker down and go into this survivalist mode for hundreds of years so that humanity can survive. And there's this moment about halfway through the book where the narrator is talking about how in the survivalist mode, the people, they look at what's around them, they maybe look at the stars and they see what's there, but they don't notice what's missing. And in my head, I said, ah, it's a moon, because the moon has a very stabilizing effect on the earth. And it turns out in this series of books that humanity, in trying to take control of the power of the earth, flung the moon into a wildly elliptical orbit. So it goes very far away and comes back. And there's a suggestion that this may be what causes the seasons, this gravitational tugging of the moon. Because we know that on Earth, the moon, even the moon's formation may have been very important to making the Earth better for life. Because most moons in the solar system form in a microcosm of planetary formation, where out of the leftover debris orbiting a new planet, they coalesce. Our moon was formed by a giant impact that a body the size of Mars smashed into the Earth, destroying itself and sending a lot of the surface of the Earth into orbit, which eventually coalesced as the moon, which thinned the Earth's crust and may have made plate tectonics on the Earth more active. Plate tectonics being important for regulating carbon in the atmosphere, you know, until humans come along and really ruin everything. And the continents move, which may fuel evolution and new species and innovation in that way. And the list just goes on and on. So I was so excited. It's such a tiny thing in the book. And it becomes magical in the book. You know, it's somewhat of a fantasy novel. But even in a very solid physical way, disrupting the relationship between the Earth and the Moon could have cataclysmic effects on the Earth and on life. And next, I want to look at different ways that like we of course presume because of the natural selection evolution that that is how things will work in other areas of life on other planets but um again that doesn't always have to be the case and let's look at this through the prism of octavia butler's novel dawn yes so this was another one where it's not the main point of the book but i found like this little corner of a hint that uh felt really relevant to what i was writing about so this is a fantastic novel. Everyone talks about Parable of the Sower, but I think this knocks it out of the water about a, a human woman 
who wakes up to find herself on an alien spaceship. And it turns out the Earth was basically destroyed by nuclear war and the aliens have rescued the couple hundred human survivors to like, you know, um, fix up the Earth and, and repopulate it. And these aliens are, at first, they seem repulsively different to this woman. They're humanoid in body shape, but they're gray and tentacled. And she feels this deep revulsion that she's really seeing something unnatural as if she's not supposed to see them. Like, it's just like, this encounter should not be happening. But eventually she comes to know them. They have learned English. She learns their language. She has relationships with them. She loves them. They're similar enough to, to have that sort of connection, which when we think about the real possibilities is not at all a guarantee. The idea that an alien language would be a language that we could learn just like, you know, I might learn Spanish or Chinese is not for sure, right? But she's able to, they're similar enough in all those ways that she can talk to them and get to know them and have relationships with them. But there are still these fundamental differences and they do turn out to have very different worldviews and very different moralities. And part of where that comes from is just this fundamental difference in their essence. So one of the aliens tells her that humans are to their detriment hierarchical, that all life on earth is, and that this is part of why human civilization has failed in this, you know, conflagration of nuclear war. But when he says that all life on the planet is hierarchical, and he's pointing out that that's a difference between their worlds, I read that as being about evolution, that Darwinian evolution, competition, survival of the fittest, that's a very short step away from hierarchy, from better, from worse, from weaker and stronger. Whereas these aliens, the Onkali, they call themselves traders, like they trade. And what they say they trade is themselves, not as slavery, but bits of their genetic code. They have this ability to manipulate genetic code to sort of read it and change it. And so what they do is they meet other species and they look inside their genetics and see what abilities, what tendencies the new species has that they might need to better themselves. And then the Onkali see what genes they have that they might be able to offer the other species. And, you know, it gets a little thorny when it turns out this trade is not necessarily voluntary for humans, but um, it is still, it's acquisition. It's this mindful trading and assessment rather than competition. And it really read to me as just like a different mechanism for evolution, even though Butler never, she never talks about Darwin. She never talks about evolution, but I felt like that's what was going on under the surface. And I just want to talk about one more example, which is ways in which we can imagine the intelligence or the consciousness of of an alien species, and and that's through the uh, the film adaptation of Arrival, the um the Ted Chang short story. So Ted Chang's work is so interesting to me because when you read his stories, what comes through is the application of scientific principles. You know, you read a story of your life or you see the movie and it's about how learning a new language changed this woman's experience of time, which is, um, you know, taking to a fictional extreme, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis, which is that language determines how we experience the world or can shape it. And, you know, I spoke to him for my book and even in the end notes to the collection of short stories, he talks about how this story began with the idea of 
What if you knew there was great misery coming for you in your life at the other end of great joy? Would you still choose that path? Like it's, it's coming from this very human idea. And then he finds the scientific frameworks to build it and make it a scientific short story, you know? And it's just so interesting to me that he's using the science to drive a really human story. And when I interviewed him, I was really curious about how he wrote the alien characters and if they were characters to him, if they were people, if he knew their motivation. And he said, no, absolutely not. That he needed them to be alien to him in order for them to be really alien and unknowable within the story. And I found that fascinating because those aliens, the heptapods, in the movie and in the story, are the example most often that scientists brought up when I asked them if they had a particular sci-fi alien that they loved or thought was compelling or thought was realistic. And it turned out that it was this one that the writer, a writer who is so sensitive and insightful, deliberately kept as opaque to himself so that they could really be alien and ultimately unknowable. Because, you know, how do you imagine a truly alien consciousness? Maybe the whole point is that you can't and that you don't and you keep it unknown. So I've been talking to Jamie Green. We've been talking about her new book, The Possibility of Life, Searching for Kinship in the Cosmos, which is out now in the UK from Duckworth. Jamie, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.